So this is just an opportunity for us to continue talking about what it means um, to be united in Christ. As we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 last week in verse 3, everybody look down at your Bible, read along with me to yourself. This is what it says. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul, after talking about for several chapters here what it means to be in Christ, to have a new identity, to truly be saved, the children of God, that that is not just some philosophical or intellectual assent, but it is also um, a conduct of life. That if one truly is a Christian, then there is a life to be led. I had the opportunity with my nephew yesterday, yesterday and brother-in-law to go to a barber shop here in town, which I wish I could go to every day, just to hang out and visit. But I don't have any hair, so it's weird. But I was talking to the barber who was cutting uh, Ben's hair yesterday, and we were having this discussion. He's like, man, I just really struggle. As soon as he found out I was a pastor, it was question, 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 question. He goes, man, I just really struggle with this idea of these people who claim to be Christians, and they go to church on Sunday, and they take up the offering, and they're deacons, and all this sort of stuff, but that has no bearing on the rest of the week. And I said, you know what you call those people? And he said, what? Non-Christians. That's what you call those people. And he said, well, you can call them that, because he didn't want to judge. And I said, well, it's not me, brother. I think the Bible clearly states that we will know them by their fruits, So Paul is also illustrating a similar thing, that we are to walk worthy in the manner of the calling to which we are called. That word walk there is the idea of conduct. It is the idea of life. The idea of dormant Christianity is an American invention, all right? It is from the pits of hell itself, sin, Satan, and death invented that very thing and has deceived many people in believing that though we are Christians, that we do not have to pursue obedience and holiness, and yet that is contrary to what God's word truly says. When we speak of unity, we are talking about unity in Christ, and that's a very key phrase. Again, unity is in Christ. This means that the glue that unites you and I's diversity is Jesus and his word. Jesus and his word. Pastor J.D. Greer, who I hope this summer will become the president of the Southern Baptist Convention here, hopefully, prayerfully, in a few weeks, if we can stay together and be unified, he often will say this, real believing always leads to belonging, all right? Again, this idea of having a Christian faith apart from the local church is contrary to Scripture. If you have real faith, real belief in Jesus, in the person and work of Jesus, then you will belong. You don't have to beg believers to belong. Just going to be really honest. They, it will happen. They need to be encouraged, yes, edified, yes, but you will belong, become a member to a local body. You have pastors shepherding you, watching over you, protecting you, and a church family to do likewise. See, our temptation, brothers and sisters, is to be like the world. We are always enticed by it, aren't we? 
As we mentioned last week, the Bible, as we read last week, tells us that we're to be humble and gentle and patient. And all of those three things are very countercultural. We live in, your kids are growing up in a world that encourages, man, your voice to be heard for selfish ambition and for self-promotion. Yet the scripture commands us to place our needs below the needs of others. That means their needs, your needs, are greater than my needs. That means your time and me sacrificially giving of my time to you is more important than me having time to do what I want to do. Okay? And that affects, again, all aspects of life. Your needs above mine. Our needs for the other person's or other people's needs. Individualism is the anti-gospel. Individualism is the anti-gospel. See, we are learning as we're going through this that something from the inside out, Jesus is at work creating new attitudes. He is creating new virtues within us that are from Christ. They are in Christ. They are from Christ. They will be gifted by Christ. And these new kingdom attitudes are the building blocks for unity. If I'm struggling to outdo you in service and you're struggling to outdo me in service, think about the relationship that happens there. There's a lot of joy there. There's a lot of celebration that's taking place. If, if we're jostling over who gets to wash each other's feet first, there can be a lot of joy there. There's a lot of servanthood there. These are the building blocks. Why? Because they're Christ-like virtues. Because of who we are in Christ, we are called to maturity. If you remember the images from last Sunday, this kind of pyramid, this, this pursuit of holiness, and the goal is not holiness within itself, it's not moralism, but the goal in doing all the things that God commands us to do and not doing the things that he says not to do leads us to a more intimate relationship with Jesus Jesus, which in turn will make me love myself um, at a kind of an average uh, self-love and love you even more, love Jesus even more, want to serve you even more. Now, what happens though is that if we begin to not to pursue Jesus, then many times our ego will get into the way. And ego is the kindling that leads to a great catastrophe in the church. Causes division, causes separation, causes disunity. Sin, Satan, and death are the enemies of the church. Their tactics are to create chaos, laziness, lack of sacrificial commitment, division from false converts, false preachers, cause gossip, slander, biblical ignorance, and immaturity. These are all from the devil, okay? This is all from sin, Satan, and death. If you're an immature Christian today, I want you to know that it's not driven by the Holy Spirit that is being driven by the, the prince of the darkness. So, by God's grace to maintain this unity, we must recognize that these are one, first, weapons and yet, by God's grace, we're going to put them to death. Remember, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
So this passage, as we continue this into verse 4 today, says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, the, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so these two verses here, we, or three verses, we see, see Paul give out seven one-liners, right? Seven one-statements. Now, what we think about, when we think about being one, what does that reiterate? Unity, all right? So he's continuing in this theme, be eager to maintain unity, and then he goes into these seven one-liners, these seven statements about being one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. These are one. They are united. So what does he mean quickly by one body? This idea of one body is a reference that Paul often uses inside of the scripture to talk about the local church, to talk about the body of Christ. And the local churches, they come together all over across the globe and they form the body of Christ, that we are the physical flesh and bones of Jesus when we come together united in Christ for his glory. We are the body of Christ, that there is one spirit. There is only how many spirits? There's one. There's not multiple Holy Spirits. There is the Holy Spirit. He is not an it. He is a he. Okay? And it's important for us to get that this Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to walk worthy, to maintain this unity. One hope. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, as we read several months ago, tells us that we are once without hope. And yet for those of us who are in Christ, what do we know? We have hope. We are in hope. There's one Lord. The gospel can be summed up into these three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is central at what it means to be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, we live in a pluralistic society. They're going to say things like there are many ways to get to God. They're going to say that all of these different paths, whether it's Hindu, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Catholicism, whatever it is, that all of these pathways will eventually lead to the same Lord. And yet that is contrary to what the Bible says. These things cannot, if you've seen the bumper sticker, coexist. Why? Because the demands of Jesus himself is, is I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wide is the gate of destruction, but narrow is the, the gate that leads to righteousness. It's narrow because the gate ultimately is who? It's a person. His name is Jesus, not Buddha, not, you know, uh, all of these other gods and goddesses that have been created by sin, Satan, and death. One faith. That means that there is one or a collection of absolute truths that we can guarantee are from God himself, and they are absolutely true. 
Again, they're not multiple faiths. There is one faith, and we as Christians, if truly are Christians, should be embracing the same essential truths. There is one baptism. The Greek word for baptism, if you've been around Baptist life for very long, means immersed. That's why we dunk people in the water. That's why we don't sprint them. It means to be immersed, completely covered in this. First off, priority speaking, you are baptized, if you are truly a Christian, in Christ. That means there is nothing that is not covered in the person and work of Jesus inside of your life. Therefore, that's one of the reasons why we do water baptism is to symbolically show that we are completely covered in the person and work of Jesus. Isn't it Galatians 2.20 that says that it is not I that no longer live, but it is Christ who lives. Christ who is within me is who lives. This is the picture that all of our lives, so it makes no sense for a person to claim to be a follower of Jesus on Sunday and to be living and promoting habitual sin on Monday. It's contradictory. We are in Christ. The last thing that we see here is one God and Father. As we saw in Ephesians 1, those who are truly in Christ, we've all been adopted by who? By God, that every one of us, black, white, yellow, every color in between, every nationality, for those whom God has predestined, for those whom God has saved, for those whom God has chosen, we have the same Father. Our families who uh, adopt children of different races, this is a physical picture of what this is like to be the children of God. There's, there's different hair, there's different body style. There is different shapes, sizes, height, all of those sorts of things, and yet they're all bearing the last name of the adopted father. Such is true of us who are in Jesus. The wall of hostility has been broken down, and many nations have been welcomed in, and we are called the sons and daughters. The biological child gets the same blessing as the adopted child in Jesus. Okay? So we see this, these ideas, seven one-liners, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. One of the primary ways that unity is maintained is in sharing common beliefs. It is in the sharing of common beliefs. You know, back in the 80s, I'm, I, I think this is as far as kind of when it kind of got, got to happening, within the business world, was this whole idea is everybody needs a business statement, a mission statement. And then this permeated itself into the late 80s, early 90s, or really into the church with something that was called the purpose-driven life or the purpose-driven church movement. That everybody, and you, every church needs a mission statement. It needs to be able to just like cult-like with, in the, the ability for its members to be able to articulate what is this business's mission? What are they all about? And I could start naming off names of businesses even here in town. If, if, if I won't deliver it to my house, I won't deliver it to yours. Who is that? Trent Betting, high school classmate of mine. 
All right? I could do that over and over. Jewelry barn and pawn shop. Jewelry barn and pawn shop. Half the, twice the jewelry, half the price. Right? We could do this for a lot of different companies. And guess what? You would get it. What's their mission? What's their goal? All of these sorts of things. And that's not necessarily bad at all. It's very beneficial. Okay? We here at Mission Church have something, it is our kind of collective mission that we're going to keep coming back to this. This is something that holds us together, that we're going to worship Jesus, that we're going to make disciples and that we're going to multiply. And if we're not doing things that reflect those three goals or aspects or missions, then we're not going to do them. So this is a good thing, sharing, maintaining common beliefs. If you meet a Christian, a true Christian in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and then you travel to Bangladesh, guess what should be there? The same core beliefs. The same essentials, non-negotiables, orthodox, willing to die for beliefs in all true believers. Thus, it's the reason why here at, member, at, at Mission, while we have a membership process, it's while inside on our webpage, inside the membership covenant, inside the membership packet, what is listed there? It is a statement of faith. This is what we believe as a collective body. These are the truths that we believe. And guess what? It, it, is, it is not, it is to cause distinction for this body of believers. That this is who we are. We're unapologetic for it. We're going to continue to press into it, and if there's things that aren't clear or we get newer understanding of what God says, then we're, we're willing to, to press into that. But we have a statement of faith that if you're a member here that we call you to, that we are called to as well, to say, this is the, this is the Constitution, this is the, the Word, this is what we believe about who Jesus is, about what marriage is, about what sin is, about who God is. Why? Because we believe good communication and having a statement of faith will only bring clarity and unity to this body. It's a good thing to teach here and to serve here in many roles here at Mission we, you have to be a member. Why? Because we know that through covenant membership that you are saying that you adhere to these common beliefs. You want us to do this. If not, then anybody can go in there and teach your kids all kinds of craziness without true accountability. But because we have a statement of faith then on general hard-nosed issues, then these things we should continue to be coming back to. Now, I want to say this. Where Scripture is clear, guess what we should be? Clear. But we know that there are some things in regards to Scripture that they're not, it's not clear. Okay? So what do we do with those moments? Well, where the Scripture is clear, we are clear. Where it doesn't speak specifically into a situation, what should we do? We should use biblical wisdom in all attempts to make some sort of practice or some sort of statement about X, Y, and Z that ultimately honors God and His Word. 
If not them, this is how, as Paul warns earlier in the book of Acts, this is how false teachers and anything goes theology can create division within the community of faith. We are not called to link arms with those who have abandoned Scripture. Confessionally, we've had more people leave here at Mission Church because of our statement of faith than anything else. We're unapologetic for that. Why? Because the basis of it, and if you can prove otherwise, please, humbly, please come to us and show us where it is wrong. Because our heartbeat is what? To pursue God, to know God, to pursue holiness. It is the, the Bible, the Scripture, is what binds us together. It is what unifies us. We can make mistakes, but let, let it be known, the Bible does not. The Bible does not. We should see a constant or consistent belief system within Christians. These creeds, as we read earlier, the Apostles' Creeds, they help to define who we are. And also in many cases in the past and in the present, though, we need to understand that many of these believers, brothers and sisters throughout Christian history, because they believed such things as the Apostles' Creed or what we've read here today with all of those one statements, they were actually signing a death certificate. This is the seriousness of what we're saying here. Certain times in history to say that there is one Lord, his name is Jesus, that is punishable by death. They were thrown to the lions, they were dipped in tar, they were put onto poles, tied to those poles, and even some kings would then light those people on fire and use them as street lights to the screams of burning Christians, your brothers and sisters, because they believed in these ones. One Lord, one God, one church. And it is serious for us to get this, though persecution is not coming to us physically yet. It may one day. I pray that it does not. It is to brothers and sisters throughout the world because they refuse to stop saying that Jesus is Lord. Because if there is one Lord and his name is Jesus, then all other entities and people cannot be him. Remember, who were these people before they became Christians? They were Gentiles in a polytheistic society. They, they worshipped just whatever gods out there, and specifically in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, they were worshipping Artemis. So this is extremely, just so important for us to get this, and the seriousness of what we're saying. That we're being, we're, we're so committed to these ones that you and I are willing to die for them today. There are many things within Christendom, or what we call Christendom, that we should not be willing to die of, or for. But these seven are things that we should we can be tempted to waver. We can be quick to diminish or to overlook these essential beliefs as an, an attempt to kind of get along or to keep the peace. I see this all the time in American Christianity. When the culture begins to rumble on certain cultural issues or moralistic issues, even sinful issues, many who claim to be followers of Jesus will begin to waver on what Scripture says in order to embrace people and a lifestyle and a practice that is unreflective of Scripture. Be warned. 
Do not go down this path simply because the culture is placing pressure upon us does not mean that it is greater than that of Scripture. Now we submit to Jesus first. We submit to His Word, even if that makes us uncomfortable, even if that, that makes us have to say in love some, some difficult things. But I want you to know, if you are truly pursuing after Jesus, two things are going to happen in your life. The first thing is, is there's going to be division between you and the world. The second thing is, is there's going to be unity with you within the church. All right? We are not to link arms and maintain unity with the world. No, contrary to that, we turn from evil practices. We verbally speak in love and in grace and in truth, and we stand for the word of the Lord. I get this every semester that I teach at Western. When you begin to stand for biblical truths in a very pluralistic society, where anything goes, there is no absolute truth, then you can begin to see people shudder and wrestling through these sorts of things. As a good common practice here at Mission Church, what we've tried to say is, is that this, is that we need to understand the concept of what it means to have closed-handed beliefs and open-handed beliefs. Closed-handed beliefs are these orthodox, they are the clarity that we can see in Scripture, Okay? For instance, Jesus is coming back. You should close your fist around that. He is coming back. What do you do when you close a fist? You prepare to fight. That is something that you fight for. Jesus is coming back. Now the open-handed thing in regards to how Jesus is coming back is that can be very open-handed. We're not really for sure. There's a lot of processes, there's a lot of scholarship on a lot of different ways that it can be very difficult. The orthodox belief, Jesus is coming back, how he's going to do that, there should be a lot of charity in that hand. There should be a lot of openness to learn in that hand, okay? But what happens in many of our churches is, is we take the, what we should be fighting over and we put that behind our back, and I grew up in Franklin, there were lots of girl fights and so girl fights consist of a lot of slapping each other and pulling of hair. All right? And how silly does it look for two especially grown men to be slap fighting? And yet this is a picture of the church when we love to fight about things that are not orthodox, that are not critical to our beliefs. We love to slap and look silly when it should be, not a hand raised, like my mama used to do and get them big bug eyes, but it's a hand extended. Charity, grace, and open-handed issues, and there's a plethora of those. We just don't have time to go into that. Now notice, what is expressed in these seven one-liners, these seven one-statements? Do we not see the Trinity? There's one Spirit, there is one Lord, there is one God and Father, the Trinity. Now, I don't have time this morning to dive into some Trinitarian controversy and all the things of what it means to be the Trinity, to have the Trinity, and all those sorts of things, but here are three key concepts for helping you to articulate what the Trinity is. We need to get this this morning, that our unity is resting in in that very truth. 
It is resting in the Trinity and in itself is eternal and it's unbreakable. Here you go. Three things, the Trinity. There is only one God. As other belief systems would try to come against Christianity, say that, that we believe in more than one God. If you talk to an, uh, a Muslim person who is trying to grasp what we're trying to say, they really have problems with saying that Jesus is God. All right? We believe as Christians in how many gods? One. All right? That God, the Godhead, is made up of three different persons. There's one God. There's the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There is one God. This one God is made up of three divine persons. That means this, that the Father is not the Son. That can be very difficult for people to understand. Jesus is not saying, I am the Father. I am the Father are one. He does say that. But we've got to be really careful in trying to get this picture that there is God and sometimes he shows up as God the Father and sometimes he shows up as Jesus the Son and sometimes he shows up as Jesus the Holy Spirit. That's actually heresy called modalism, isn't it? Right? It's called modalism. That's really bad. We try to come up with all kinds of illustrations about the Trinity. We'll say, well, God's like water and he's liquid and he's steam and if you freeze him, then he becomes ice. Terrible terrible okay he's not an egg either shell white yolk that's modalism i understand why we try to say those things because we're trying to grasp something really hard but we need to get this god one god three persons the father is not the son the son is not the father the spirit is not the son and yet all together they are God. They are three persons and they are co-equal and co-eternal. God did not create Jesus. Jesus has always been. Go back to Genesis, what, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 26, somewhere around there. Let us create man, them, in our, plural, image. Jesus has always been. The Holy Spirit is not a created being. He has always been. They are God and they are in perfect unity, perfect relationship. God was not missing anything in his companionship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so all the side to say, I got an idea, I'm going to make a man and be in relationship with him. No, they are perfect unity, perfect bound, perfect um, just cohesion together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God himself is in perfect unity. But notice... In this perfect unity and oneness, there's what? Diversity. There is diversity. And yet they're still able to be perfectly loving, kind, in relationship with one another. It can be a difficult paradox for us to get. Paul kind of paints this picture, and we're going to see now that within the church, there is oneness, there is unity, and yet there's also diversity. Keep going here into verse 7. But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave the gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Brothers and sisters, here's what we need to get. A lot of times, man, growing up, anybody got a testimony? I just want to thank the Lord for saving me by grace, all right? And that's, we love grace within the church. You got it on a mug, you got it hanging at your house somewhere. We name our kids after that. Grace, 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 grace. We love grace. But we need to understand that this grace is not just saving us from something, but as we often say here at Mission, it is saving us to something, Grace is equipping us. It is empowering us. Maybe a way to understand this is this word grace that is mentioned here, that these are grace gifts. Paul's not talking about salvation here as much as he's talking about a work for us to do, an ability. See, unity is not uniformity. Though they were one, they have, as we do, all different spiritual gifts. These gifts are not to be hoarded by the possessor of them, but shared in the community of faith. I love what one of the commentators said this week. He said this, The Christian community is essential for growth to maturity because Christ has sovereignly endowed every individual with special abilities to minister to the other members. Pastor Eric, what are you talking about? I'm talking about what the Bible's talking about. Inside of this room right now, if you truly are a follower of Jesus, if Jesus has truly saved you, then every one of you, when you were extended grace, were, again, not just given this positional divine kind of decree about your life, but it also came with a special, kids will love this, a special superpower from God that is meant for each one of us in this room to use for the encouragement, edification of the church body. I'll get into this more deeper next week because that is what I'm doing right now. I am using this grace gift that God has given me to proclaim, teach, shepherd, so on and so forth these people flock that is among me. But you also have a gift, and it is diverse. It is different. Some of us kind of, we kind of can be grouped up, and we're more like this, and then others of you are like this. Others of you are, you just, you have a gift. If Jesus is inside of you, brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, then you have a supernatural gift that has been graced to you, put inside of you. And it is not for your own good alone, but most importantly, it is for God's glory and for the good of everyone sitting around you. A grace given was given to every person. This gift is given specifically to you for ministry purposes. By grace and from grace, each one is given an ability to use or to be used in service to build up the body of Christ. These are spiritual gifts or manifestations of God's grace. From grace, by grace, we are empowered, equipped with these special abilities to work within the church. When everyone is using these gifts, then look at what's going to happen to the church. It's going to maintain its unity. 
People are going to be discipled. We're going to be encouraged. We're going to be a healthy church. And we're going to be mature in Jesus. So I tried to think this week, what are some corny ways maybe that I could illustrate to you to this? Knowing that we've got everything from small kids to, to more wise adults among us. In my family, we like to, we're nerds, and uh, in, especially in January, when we called the church to cultivate and to fast from TV. Um, some of you don't recognize this because you didn't join us. Uh, but for some of us, we got bored really quick. Okay? So we were putting together puzzles. Um, we were doing all sorts of things as a family. We love to put together a puzzle. All right? So unity and having these special gifts is that if you look at a puzzle, then you can quickly realize all these pieces are different. And yet when they're united together, what do they form? One solid picture. What you don't want to be is that puzzle piece that was lost. All of January, the Crosbys spent these hours working on two different puzzles, got down to putting in the last piece, and they could not find it. You know what that puzzle would have been at our house? Fire pit. All right, I would have been so frustrated. But get this, don't be the missing puzzle piece. You have a specific gift that God has given you. And when you are not contributing that to the local church, guess just like it does me, just like it did Todd Crosby and the rest of his family, when they could not find that puzzle piece, it caused disunity and frustration. And the same thing will happen within the church. Because it gets really, people get really tired. It's hard to be humble, gentle, and patient when you're contributing your whole life and existence to the local church, ultimately to God, and others sitting in the same pews or not. Causes, again, what? Disunity. And yet the Bible's calling us to be unity. Husbands and wives. We are very different. I know that our culture is trying to say that there's no such thing as male and female anymore. But it doesn't take a scientist to realize. It probably just takes a couple of naked pictures to quickly realize, as Grover would say, one of these things is not like the other. Okay? Male and female. We don't think alike. We don't talk alike, act alike. Please don't dress alike. We, I mean, it is the, it, I think God is just, uh, he has to have a huge sense of humor. He goes, I'm going to take some of this and put that over here and take some of that and put that over there. And I'm going to make these two totally opposite things and I'm going to make them get married and love it. And you know what? We can love it. It can be awesome. Husbands and wives are different, yet the Bible says that we are to unite as one, physical picture, bone of bone and flesh of flesh. When husbands and wives use their giftedness in the family, the family is what? Mature, healthy, all of those sorts of things. Laura and I are totally two different gifted people. And yet when we're using our forces for good, go Captain Planet, then guess what happens? I know you like that. So, good things happen. But when we're fighting over each other's giftedness and what the other one is contributing and saying things, I wish you were more like me, guess what? God did not purposely make them just like you. 
But he's giving you her, he's giving you him in order that these two separate things can come together. And when they come together properly in Christ, there's health, there's maturity. And I can honestly say I'm not one of these people that tells single people not to get married because by God's grace and a lot of hard work, I could give testimony and be thankful that I'm married to one. Nerd out some more. The Avengers. The superheroes. When you start thinking about superheroes, what is the illustration? Every one of them have different powers. Every one of them, don't they kids? Every one of those characters have extremely different powers. Thor is not Iron Man. The Hulk is not Spider-Man. Black Panther is not Captain America. Just think about how boring it would be if all superheroes all had the exact same powers. Would they just like push and shove and never go anywhere? (laughs) They're of equal strength, equal power, equal ability. I mean, this is just going to be a stalemate as we arm wrestle. But that's not the case. It's, it's not the case. They are all different. And if they weren't different, and if they didn't come together using all of these different attributes, all of these different abilities, then guess what? They would never be able to win the war against the powers of darkness, also known as Thanos. That's an Avengers quote. They would not come together. See, every one of us, I'm so glad not all of you are me. I'm so glad of that. I'm so glad that not all of you get frustrated with the things that I get frustrated with. I'm so glad that not every one of you um, want to preach every Sunday. I'm, I'm so glad that, that not all of you can be as, as, I mean, could you imagine if everyone in here was dramatic as I am? We would run people out of restaurants. I mean, we were already like, you need to calm down. We're scaring the babies, scaring the childrens, right? I'm so glad that not all the abilities that Justin has or I has or Pastor Todd has or, or that Ren has in playing music, all, I'm so glad that everyone in here isn't the same. But it's when we use these things together that we are able to become healthy and mature in the person and work of Jesus. Last illustration in my personal favorite. If you have not read the Chronicles of Narnia, I would encourage you to do so. Because the Chronicles of Narnia is such a picture, an allegory of the gospel and of Jesus. You have this lion, his name is Aslan, and he represents the Christ-like figure. You have these daughters, sons and daughters of Eve, and they represent us. You have this white witch who has taken over Narnia, and uh, she is just, she's made it winter. The Bible, not the Bible, (laughs) that's funny. Chronicles of Narnia says over and over and over again that because of the white witch and her evil reign, that it is winter every day, but it never is Christmas. If you go against the white witch, then you're in fear of being turned into stone. And all of a sudden, four kids make their way through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia, and things began to change. There is rumors that Aslan, the king who is far gone, is going to make his way back 
to Narnia. And if that's the case, then the evil which is going to be defeated, um, that winter will no longer be covering over Narnia and that there will be hope and life and health and wellness in all the ways that the land and the creatures of Narnia used to celebrate. There's this great scene inside of the Chronicles of Narnia, chapter 10, in case you're reading. When three of the kids, Peter, Susan, and Lucy, are all at Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house. And they begin to hear something and notice something outside. And they, Mr. Beaver says, hey, you've got to come outside. And when they go outside, who is standing there? Father Christmas, also known as Santa Claus. What I tell you earlier, in Narnia, it has been winter for years and never Christmas. But all of a sudden, Father Christmas, who has not visited them in years and years and years, is standing outside of the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and, and listen to some of the things that he says. He tells Peter and Susan and Lucy that he is going to give them some presents. But before he distributes them, he says this, These are your presents. They are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. Peter, he gives a shield and a sword. Susan, he gives her a bow and a quiver of arrows and a horn. And he, and he, he, he tells her to only use the weapon in great need because the bow doesn't miss often. Also, he says, if you ever get into really bad trouble, all you have to do is blow the horn and help will come to her. Lastly, he gives Lucy, the youngest, he gave her a small glass bottle and it was filled with liquid and this small little dagger. And he tells her that any of your friends are hurt, just a few drops and the liquid would restore them. Father Christmas then pulls out a, a bunch of Christmas goodies for all of them to share. And as he begins to hop into his sleigh with all of the, the reindeer, he cries out for the first time in years, Merry Christmas! Followed by, Long live the true King. Who is he speaking of? He was speaking of Aslan. This picture, this allegory of the gospel is very similar to us here at the church. That he's going to give some of us a sword and a shield. That he's going to give some of us a bow or a horn to call people to. That he's going to give some of us an elixir that will have the ability um, to just bring healing. Maybe not just physically, but maybe emotionally and just the caring and the shepherding and the loving of other people. And if you were to continue to read the book, you will see how each one of these tools that is used wisely by these children, how it edifies Bring encouragement, builds a healthy community, and changes all of Narnia. What a picture for us that unity has diversity in order to create unity. 
That our diversity is spoken in, in race and culture and economics, but rather our diversity comes in giftedness. Jesus has sovereignly given Christians divine gifts and abilities to different members of the local church. These gifts are not meant to separate, but to be activated, to be helping everyone in the church to mature and to grow. Our spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, are not to be hidden. They are not toys. They are not, as small children would say, mine. But they are his for all of yours sake. They're not toys. They're tools. You can always tell a man who isn't very good with his hands because his tools don't have rust on them. And not been used. May we never be those people. May we be actively engaging and using our gift. In conclusion, let's look at what the scripture says here. He goes on into talking about these gifts. Notice again, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then it goes into this explanation of what that is. Don't get all caught up into the descending and ascending and did Jesus go to hell? I don't think that that's the context here. I think what it's talking about here is that Jesus left the throne room of God to come where? To be incarnated. To come here. And again, Jesus came, brothers and sisters. He left the throne room of God. He left all of the riches of glory. He left the Trinity. He was incarnated in this, in this moment. He comes as a man, a peasant man. He lives. He's born of a virgin, as we've said inside the Apostles' Creed. He stood before Pontius Pilate. He died a horrific death. He was placed into a ball tomb. He was resurrected on the third day. But brothers and sisters, it was not merely or simply to use that term. It was not just that which is huge in the great scheme of things, but it was also to do something in you and I's life. I wish Jesus would just save us and call us up to glory, but he has left us here for a purpose. Paul goes into this because he is trying to show to his readers that the unity or oneness of the church was a passion and priority of Jesus and his work on the cross. It was not merely just to save you. Paul is saying, man, Jesus went to the cross, he died and was resurrected in order to empower you and to gift you with a supernatural ability and power to be used inside of the local body and church. This idea of the unity of, of the church was on Jesus' mind inside of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus three times, listen to this in chapter 17, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus would say again, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me. And I in you, may they also be in us. John chapter 17, verse 23 through 23. That they may be one even as we are one. So when Jesus is about to go to the cross, 
It was not just about drinking the full wrath of God, but he is praying, he is thinking about the, the eternal forever church, and he's saying, God, make them one. Unite them, Jesus, in these truths and in these works. Verse 8, if you see there, it's inside of like a, um, kind of a, a specialized paragraph, a statement there. It's a quote, if you will. When Paul writes this, he's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 68. Psalm chapter 68 is this victorious, triumphant return of the king. He's destroyed all of his enemies, and it's this picture of him riding his stallion back up to his throne, back up to his kingdom. And as he's doing so, he's got all, all the booty, all of the, the, the money and the valuables that he is taking from all of these other enemies. And he's distributing those gifts. So imagine, brothers and sisters, when Paul is quoting this, this picture that would have came to those early believers as they imagine Jesus, the King of all kings, the one Lord on top of his stallion, and you and I and the church forever and ever are lining the streets as this parade of our Jesus, this warlike God has come back and he is destroyed and in tow he is dragging in chains sin, Satan, and death as we are singing triumphantly, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are worthy, you are holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Man, when I was a kid, there was nothing better than a good parade, was there? We don't do that very much or very good anymore. But inside a parade, what made it good was not all the floats, but as a kid, it was all the potential candy that you could gather. As these trucks and these floats come by, tossing out, just broadcasting candy, and you'd see kids, I mean, risk a limb or life in order to scounge up as much candy as they possibly can. Anybody ever go to parade before? I want you to know this. Look at me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is taking special care of you. He is not broadcasting these gifts, but I want you to know that he is, Adam, he has come to you and he has placed a specific gift inside of your life. That is not in these other folks. It is in you. He took care. He took measure to say, man, this is what this brother needs. And, and guess what? That's, that's going to be different, Aaron, that God has, yes, placed his grace upon you to save you. And yet, simultaneously, that he took care, brother, with you. And in that grace has specifically, he's given you a sword or a shield. Where Adam may have the, the elixir to heal that he's not vicariously throwing out these gifts, but that God, that Jesus has predetermined in love and grace to think about our kids, if they are in Christ, that God has took his care, his humility, his gentleness, his patience with them, and not only saving them, but empowering them with a specific gift that is different than other people in the church. 
When we realize that this is what Jesus has done, brothers and sisters, what does this do? This leaves us no room for jealousy for what others can do and what you can't do. But it leaves us to rest in the person and the sovereign hand of God as He passionately placed His hand of approval and calling and supernatural ability on your life to use it in the church. It helps us to understand that we did not earn it. Paul is reminding us that the central focus of all these gifts is not us, but it is Christ. We did not develop these gifts. And you can't hope, like my nephew was showing me on Fortnite yesterday, you can't level up these characters. You can't buy new trinkets to make them stronger and wiser. And and he was showing me dance moves. You can purchase dance moves for these characters. That is not how you and I work. We can't level up, but we can mature in the one that we have. And it's not yet earned. We did not develop these gifts on our own, but Jesus died. He was resurrected in order to purchase. Think about this. Jesus purchased that special ability that you have. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, if you ever get anything from my sermons, you should thank Jesus. And if, they, if you ever think they're terrible, guess what? Blame me. Don't blame God. Because they're Him. Anything that happens. Because here's the thing. You know what? God can make me a public speaker outside the church and make me a really good one. And see all kinds of fruit in that. And then try to preach. And guess what? Nothing happened. Bring Tony Robbins into the church. There is no guarantee that that brother will grow it. Or be a part of it. Or be a good preacher. It's a supernatural working of God. It's through grace, by grace, empowered by grace. Jesus holds these gifts in his hands and he distributes them perfectly, these tools for our growth. It is not our job. One of my favorite pastors, his name is Ray Ortland in Nashville, Tennessee. He says this, it's not our job to be amazing for Jesus. It's our job to be amazed by Jesus. Look at what links Jesus went to, to grace you with not just salvation, but gifts, supernatural abilities. I'm not talking about levitation or floating. Beams coming out of my eyes are super strength. But Christ's likeness in what we see. The victorious Christ leads and serves the church forever and ever and ever. Some of you need to see the picture of Jesus today. That king on that stallion and all behind you is he's dragging all of your junk. But he's got it. Brothers and sisters, the question tonight is not do you have a gift? The question today is do you use it? Do you use it? Let's pray.